Welcome to the Busy Leaders Podcast, a catalyst for inspired action, a lively and engaging podcast hosted by Quint Studer. I'm Nicole Webb Bodie, the Chief Impact Officer for Studer Family of Companies. Quint has a great love for teaching his insights and has authored nine books in addition to the Wall Street Journal bestseller, The Busy Leaders Handbook. He's always on the lookout for ways to share great learning tools and best practices. Through his podcast, Quint chats with leaders from all industries and corners of America on how they're tackling the biggest challenges of our time. From this fresh mix of voices emerges a compelling picture of what leadership looks like in the rough and tumble trenches of 2020. You'll often walk away with tactical tools, tips, and leadership hacks that you can apply to your own business, community, and life. Joining today's podcast is Peter Mouget, a shareholder and the chair of Levin Papantonio's Security and Business Litigation Department. He concentrates his practice in the areas of complex litigation, financial services, and securities litigation. He has been recognized as one of Florida's top 100 trial lawyers, a Florida super lawyer, and has dedicated his career to champion individuals' rights against the world's largest companies. In this podcast, Peter shares how an employee engagement survey was the springboard for growth and productivity, how measuring his staff's employee engagement, he's able to use the data to build and grow those around him. If you've never considered the benefits of seeking real and honest feedback from your employees, this podcast will sure convince you that it's a true game changer. Now here's your host, Quint Studer and Peter Mouget. Well, good. Well, thank you, um, Nicole. I'm so excited to be talking to Peter Mouget today, and um, I love Peter Mouget. And so much so that one of my good friends passed away June 30th of last year, or a year, yeah, I'll be last, yeah, last year. And um, his name is John Meislick. And our community decided to give a John Meislick award out. And it was basically someone who really has professional integrity, makes a huge difference, not only professionally, but in the community. And the family and some of John's good friends selected the winner, the initial uh, winner recipient of this award, and it was Peter Mouget. So it couldn't be gone to a, a better person. So Peter, um, congratulations on that and congratulations for um, all you do. And we're gonna talk about all you do. Thanks, Quinn, appreciate it. Uh, the the Mislek family was, that was, they live right up the street from me and their son goes to school with our kids, a great family and John, great guy. What a, that was a huge honor. Big, that was a big deal at our house. Yeah, it really is, because um, I tell you, uh, John's close friends, we, we talk about him all the time, and he still, people talk about him, so it's, it's, it's pretty neat. Um, somebody sent me yesterday a picture of an a older gentleman that we all knew that had passed away, and they had a picture of a group of them by his bedside when he was in the hospital, and there was a picture of John Meislick visiting him, so sort of neat. Well, well, Peter, what caught my attention with you is you're a, a lawyer with a great law firm called Levin Papatonio, one of the great law firms in the country that does phenomenal work making um, United States safer for people in a number of arenas. And um, so being a big law firm and you have a, de- a department of that law firm or, you know, it's sort of a piece of it reminds me so much of a medical practices, law firms and accounting practices are a lot of same. It's sort of like a group that flies the shingle but there's a lot of small little fiefdoms within the, in the, in the business. And sometimes when we've talked to people, they want to do things, but they just don't think they can do it because no one else is doing it. And I got to know 
even though I knew you as an attorney, I knew you as a community person, um, I got to know you over the last couple of years as, as a leader in your law firm of your practice. And one of the things that caught my attention is you decided to measure employee engagement. And that's not common, I think, in many businesses. And it's certainly not common when the whole firm isn't doing it. So what, what led you to decide to take, really, a lot of people are afraid of this. They don't want to know to measure employee um, engagement. It's a humbling experience. I'll say it, it, I, I, I wanted to grow and I was adding people and I was adding lawyers and we were building a base of a successful practice and adding on and uh, I'm a micromanager and uh, those two butt heads and I wanted to be in every single decision making and process in the in our group and I couldn't grow because there's only one of me and so the more that I tried to get buy-in across our group on our processes and get people to uh, kind of uh, adopt the, the, the process of how we run our group and have been successful, I, I kept running into dead ends and I, I was having trouble getting folks engaged and buy-in on processes. And so I started reading some books uh, and which led me to, to uh, you and your group on, on the kind of getting the, the rounding and all of the information back from, from all of our our group's employees. And I thought if I'm going to get buy-in and I'm going to increase employee engagement, I need to learn how to do it. So it, uh, um, you know, two and a half years later into this kind of journey, it's, it's been a, a really rewarding experience. And uh, I wanted to, I wanted to keep building. I wanted to grow. And in order to do that, I had to get people to buy into what I was doing and, and I needed to know how to do that and become a, a better leader and a, and, uh, and, and, and kind of build up the folks around me. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I was close to you when we rolled out some of the information. I happened to be in your law office when we rolled out some of the initial right. information. How did you get your um, close people? You have certain people close to you. How did you, were they pretty much bought in from the beginning or just what was the technique when you mentioned to them that, hey, we're going to measure employee satisfaction, employee engagement, where there's a little bit of um, anxiety on some of them on what we're going to find out? Sure it is. I just, I mean, when you asked me initially, it's, it's a humbling experience to open yourself up to say, give me all this anonymous feedback about management styles. And, uh, and, 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 you know, in my career, I was terrible when I first got out. Um, you know, I'm very blunt and a hard charger, and that is not real conducive to uh, to building a community environment and getting folks engaged. And I had to, I made a, a lot of progress. So no, I think everybody, especially the attorneys, were very skeptical at first, and and I didn't get a. I, this was not met with a real warm embrace when we first did it. But I, I think it's been, uh, it's got great results, and it's given us great tools uh, from the feedback to uh, to better improve ourselves. And we've got. Our, our our staff is just absolutely fantastic, and all I needed to do was to give them the tools. And the more we've given people the tools, the the the, the more people have blossomed and grown in their spa spaces, and which has allowed us to continue to grow. I, th I think till we're going to talk about your growth here later on because it's been absolutely phenomenal. Um, sort of interesting when you plan this, you didn't probably plan on growing as fast as you've, no. you've grown, but. Um, 
one of the things we did the survey, which is neat about your firm, like any business, you could sort of look at different levels, different groupings. And I remember your groupings, most of your groupings were feeling pretty good already about working for, for Levin Papatonio Law Firm. Most right. of them were feeling pretty good working for you. Then we had sort of that one, one department, if you remember which one I'm talking about, that was a little lower than the other ones. But I think it's nice because it allows you to focus in on wh where you focused. And if you don't mind, why don't you talk a little bit about that, that first look and how you identified one of the early learnings from the survey? Well, there was, there was two kind of categories that really jumped. One was um, our new employees, like zero to two years. And one of the, the, the themes from the zero to two years was that there was uh, no path for advancement. And, and I always thought I did a great job on, on promoting from within. And, but what I did a really terrible job of is communicating that to the zero to two years about what that path was in giving examples. So one of the things that we did is we started to go around the rooms and, you know, not, not often, but a few times a year. And I would have somebody share their story of where they started and where they are now. So people and all the steps in between. And, and that was a huge learning uh, for both me and for the newer employees to see there is phenomenal growth opportunities. There are ways to, to increase compensation and my responsibility and my roles within the group. So that was one huge uh, piece that came out. And the second one is I had one employee that just was not happy and, uh, uh, and that you know, really jumped out at the scores uh, that I, in, in several key areas that was way below everyone else and, and gave me an opportunity to sit and talk with that employee about, about what, was, what was driving um, you know, those feelings and, and the positions that, that, uh, that he or she was taking with some of the, with some of the responses, which was, which was productive for both of us. Yeah, I think it's interesting. But first of all, it's fascinating because I did this with another law firm years ago and they found out the same thing there. I guess you call them associates. Right. Their associates all wanted to be partners, yet none of them knew how to be a partner, what right. it looked like to be a partner, and how long it took to be a partner. Right. So some of them would exit almost early, just lack of knowledge. So I think that's, that's a wonderful find. The other thing I remember clearly about yours was it allows us to sometimes, though we're not out to do it, identify a problem and ploy that's really poisoning the rest of the organization because it comes becomes really apparent questions like people being held accountable questions for our coworkers, which allows you to go in and, and make that move. And, and that was in a position that is, is, again, I don't want to take, give the position, but it's a position that any law firm is desperate for these people right now. And so you, you, you fall into the trap of possibly hanging on to someone you sort of think you shouldn't hang on to, but you're sort of worried about not filling a position. Yeah, I, I think so. And I'm terrible at that because I think I can always fix uh, I can always fix what's wrong. And so I spend a lot of time and energy of trying to uh, to to overcorrect and and kind of work some of this stuff through. And sometimes you just can't. Um, but we did spend a lot of time uh, trying to correct the situation. Um, this was a, a really high high performing employee, but that just wasn't happy about anything. And and uh, it was very difficult to uh, um, to not be able to repair it because it uh, this like I said this was a, a cornerstone of our practice this person and and really helped us 
advance and, and refine a lot of what we do. And uh, but I just whatever I did wasn't enough. You know, I find that Peter sometimes we we classify someone who's technically high or a big revenue producer as a high performer when we can say they're a high performer in these areas, but in these areas they're not. And I think sometimes Peter they almost work to be even higher than high in certain areas, thinking that gives them a pass on doing other things. That if I'm this good, they'll let me get away with maybe being a bad coworker or let me be uh, get away with not doing some things I want to do. So you, you're pretty courageous. And I think the other story you told me is um, you've turned over more and more decision-making on the hiring to some of the coworkers, haven't you? I have. I have. It, uh, I don't even participate in the in a lot of the interview process at this point within our group because we have some folks that are really good at it and uh, it's a time-consuming process as you know and uh, um, so I, I've really worked hard at trying I started off telling you about my micromanaging weakness which at times is a strength but a lot of a lot of times it's a weakness and and I've tried to divorce myself from a lot of those situations that I insisted on on participating in which frees me up to do other stuff it um, yeah I can relate. I, I am bad. People wonder why I came up with all these interview techniques because I'm so dang bad at selection. <laughs> and I mean, I've, I've hired some people that it's just unbelievable. And, and, and cause I got caught up in certain aspects of them. Maybe they were so passionate. I love their passion, but I forgot. Do they, can they get the skill or I hire them cause they have this technical skill, but maybe that, so I will, maybe people on this podcast will be surprised. I don't, I don't hire either for our companies. I have delegated it to other people. Even my own administrative executive, somebody else hired. I met her after they hired her and here I'm going to work for her. She's, right. we're going to work together. And everybody tells me what a great hire it was. And I want to say, well, that's because I had nothing to do with it. I, I didn't screw this, didn't screw this higher, higher up. Um, why didn't, you know, it, it, I, I, you already covered it. But as, um, as other lawyers in, in your firm, do you think um, there's a book out Gung Ho by Clint Blanchard, how one department started doing things. Do you see this as something that your, your firm would expand someday as they see I, some I, of the- I, I, Yeah, I think so. And I think probably sooner rather than later. I'd like to take this back to the firm. We've had, we're now in our third year and uh, I think the results have been phenomenal with the great tools. Our, our you know, Levin Papantonio is an innovator across the Always. entire firm. And, and I mean, it, it doesn't matter where we are and what space where we, we take the lead. And I, I think this is, this is definitely something the firm will get behind and quite frankly, will, uh, will, will help us get quite, you know, even, even stronger and even better than where we are, which is kind of hard to, because we do take leadership positions across the country in just about every major litigation. Um, but you can always improve, uh, you know, and here we are in a small town in Pensacola to think that we've, We've come this far with this kind of 800, with the 800 pound gorilla in, in the room, and a lot of, a lot of the litigation that we that we work on. And I think this can only take us, um, just make us even stronger. Well, for people, and, and I want to talk a little about your 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 habit, but let's talk a little bit about your law firm for those that aren't familiar with it. Why don't you give us a thumbnail sketch of the firm and some of the landmark cases that they've been involved in? over the years? Well, it was, uh, the firm was formed in 1955, which is rare that you have a firm that's, that's that long standing. Uh, it, uh, and we started out as a, uh, a full service firm, but over the years, uh, Fred Levin was, was the, uh, 
uh, patriarch of the firm and and obviously the the first name in the firm started off with a, uh, a kind of a personal injury practice and quickly became known both locally, regionally, and nationally as one of the best trial lawyers in the country. And the, the cases started from one of his first big seminal cases was a, a, a railroad case uh, that was a derailment. And uh, when he was a young man, uh, kind of culminated in the late 90s into being one of the architects on the tobacco cases. And uh, now there was a lot of victories in between. Um, but his work, uh, you know, Mike Papantonio's on the mass tort front, which is pharmaceutical, environmental. Um, and then there's a, just a cadre of lawyers that have worked in, and grown up in that space. Um, Troy Rafferty is a, a lawyer's lawyer and has led some of the major litigations across the country. But you name it, over the last 25 years, any, any national litigation on the pharmaceutical, environmental side, um, our firm has, uh, has been... Uh, a material role in each one of those cases. Uh, Mark Proctor runs a lot of our our uh, mass tort. We have a conference twice a year, and uh, that that brings over a thousand lawyers from all over the country to get updates on all the national litigation. That's organized by by uh, Mike Papantonio and and Mark Proctor, and that is an absolute just just a huge huge hub across the country of information flow on these cases. There's everything from judges to academics to trial lawyers that uh, uh, vendors that attend these conferences and it is a an absolute uh, phenomenal opportunity to exchange information and and network and uh, and that's all run out of our out of our firm. We have about 55 lawyers, uh, 200 and and uh, 5300 support staff and uh, we have huge, huge uh, roles in environmental work, pharmaceutical work, securities, um, you name it. Uh, we have a huge personal injury practice in the across the country, but but primarily focused in uh, Pensacola, uh, antitrust work, uh, a lot of very, very complex, highly esoteric, uh, huge uh, litigation uh, type cases that involve thousands of cases typically consolidated in one in one court. Now, which brings me to a question is, you have, um, you know, your employee base that you're responsible for can be 30 up to 200 at times, depending on the case. For a person that likes to micromanage, um, when we were flying, I saw you on a plane quite often. Right. That means you're gone a lot. I think you're almost a resident of Cleveland over the last couple of years because you have a big case up there. Um, how, how have you been able to to, you know, when we talk about virtual employees, we're normally thinking the employees are virtual. Well, in this situation, the boss is sometimes virtual. What, what have you done any techniques to, to communicate differently when you're on the road than when you're sitting in Pensacola? Well, it, it we, where we started out in this conversation about the, the process and, and one of the things that I really tried hard to get buy off from employees was how do we run our meetings? How do we organize our cases? We have a, a large volume of complex cases. And, uh, and, and a lot of my challenges was to get our employees buying into those processes and organizational tools, uh, whether it be document management, client management, communication with our clients. And, and, and as I got buy-off from our uh, staff and our attorneys, paralegals, case managers, uh, this became easier and easier, and the less I had to be involved on a day-to-day -day basis. So what this allowed me to do 
um, by kind of being a little more hands-off where I used to be, where I was involved in every meeting, was take on more national roles, be gone from the office more. And what I found really scary and satisfying at the same time was it ran really efficiently with these processes in place without me having my finger on everything. So um, as I'm, I'm on the road uh, three or four days a week, uh, sometimes I'm only in the office a handful of days, things have run really, really well without me. Um, but I still, uh, I, I use uh, agendas and uh, database management of clients. We, we call down large amounts of information distill it in charts and graphs and uh, and then those those data points are run by our staff to help us manage everything and it what I've done is make the meetings more efficient that we can get more done quickly I like to whether it's zoom or um, a telephone conference or in person to have kind of meetings with senior managers on, on specific topics once a week so I, I stay in tune and, and in time with a lot of the information that's emailed to me in, in regular reports, and then we have quick meetings that uh, that uh, that go over those those kind of key macro points. I think what's pretty neat is not that you had a, a a Ouija board, but think of the work you did two and a half years ago, and by doing that, how when the opiate case popped and you right. were leading that, that allowed you to do some things that maybe would have maybe fallen through the cracks or broken apart if two and a half years ago you hadn't yeah. started building your team. Yeah. And for, for those that are listening, um, why don't you, if you, you know, anything you can share, why don't you share with people? Cause we have a lot of healthcare people that have seen the damage of overprescription of opiates have done. Some of the management of opiates have done. I'm on the board of Betty Ford and Hazleton. And as you know, I see it firsthand for right. what you can share. Why don't you talk a little bit about the, the whole opiate situation and what you've learned? When we first started looking at the uh, the case, uh, you know, the, the problem back in 17, and, and we find solutions to complex problems through litigation. That's what we do. And if it can't be solved at the regulatory level, um, we come in as a, as a law firm and help to solve complex problems, typically on behalf of regular people. Uh, in the opiate case, we represent cities and counties, uh, about 700 across the country. It's, we represent almost 25% of the U.S. population. And the cities and county, the claims that we brought uh, in large part are based in uh, public nuisance, which essentially just means that we are asking the defendants to clean up the mess they created through the, the glut of pills into our communities. And by that, uh, the, the distributor case, which a lot of people don't know what that is, and the distributors, all opiates are in a closed system. The, every pill is tracked from the manufacturer all the way down to the pharmacies. And, uh, and the, a key uh, point in that distribution chain are the distributors. And that's typically, it's space is dominated by the big three, McKesson, Cardinal, and Amerisource Bergen. And uh, Walgreens, for example, is another big uh, distributor across the country. The, the four of those companies together are about 70, 75% of every pill that's uh, distributed in the country. And their role, their charge under the Controlled Substance Act, they are supposed to monitor for orders of unusual size, frequency, um, or amount. They're supposed to be looking and their, their charge is identifying the, the, uh, those unusual orders and reporting them to the DEA and performing due diligence on those orders before they ship. 
well, it was a cataclysmic disaster. Their business plan was to ship as many pills into the, uh, into the country and our communities as they could. So we represent the communities and our charge back to the defendants is, you've got to clean up this mess, what's known in our, our legal jargon is abatement. So uh, all of those cases were consolidated in Cleveland under Judge Polster. And there's about 2,800 cases now currently pending. And uh, we are, uh, we've made a ton of progress over the last three years. And uh, I think it's going to result in a lot of money going back to our local communities for treatment and education and, uh, and safety are the three pillars of our case. So we're, we've made a ton of progress. That's what I get, I get chills because, you know, being with Betty Ford Hazelton, um, I love the fact that a big part of this is the education and the treatment and, and so on to deal with. Like you say, you, you bring solutions. Well, um, again, we're just thrilled to have you on this, on this podcast. And, um, you know, I admire so much you, your family, your mom, who's a, a great cheerleader in this, in this community. Um, so I want to thank you for being on this podcast. Thank you for role modeling for other leaders, how a successful leader, and it doesn't surprise me, you know, James Collins writes the good to great. I've always found the better want to get better. People used to ask me, do you do a lot of turnaround, Quint? I said, no, turnaround people don't call us because they're so busy rationalizing why it's not their fault. People that used to call us are really good, but they want to get better. And certainly um, you're a leading law firm and a leading attorney in that law firm. And it's a great example of just somebody wanting to get better. So it's been wonderful to have been working with you these last two and a half years and to see the growth in, in your department. And thank you again, what you do for our country. No, and, and I also just want to say thank you and your, your team. You guys have a phenomenal team and to have an asset like you in the, in the community and your team to be able to have a resource like this that that's, that's helped us. Uh, I couldn't have done this without you. And your team is just an invaluable resource. And I certainly do appreciate all that you do as well and uh, the leadership you provide for our community. And now that's spilling into communities across the country. So you're a huge asset and so is your entire team. Thank you. Well, the one thing we'll never agree on is who can thank each other more. So thank you, everyone, for listening today. It was my my pleasure to have Peter Muget, a Lemon Papitonio law firm, and I hope you learned an awful lot about leadership and also an update on the opiate case. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Busy Leaders Podcast, a catalyst for inspired action, hosted by Quint Studer. Please subscribe, rate us, and write a review. For more information, visit thebusyleadershandbook.com.